0: Thank you so much for coming this evening. Um, Thank you, uh, Roma. Thank you, Franco. And thank you, of course, Professor Milani, for inviting me. It's such a pleasure to be here. And as you'll see, my book actually has a special connection to Stanford. Um, Before I start, I have to ask you one thing, and that is, which my publisher made me swear to do, which is to follow me on Twitter, on Facebook, and on any other social media platform, because uh, one of the things that has happened with this book is, um, I wrote an academic book, the way academics write a book, in in a library, in my sweatpants, and um, then the book became larger and um, got a New York Times review and it was became a kind of popular book and my publisher said, You're not on social media, this is horrible. You need to have a Twitter following. So wherever I go I have to ask people to follow me. Um, and then that we get that out of the way, um, we, we can talk about the book. Uh, so let's see, I'll to this book has been a very long time in the making. Ten years ago, more or less started working on it, even more than 10 years ago. I, uh, the book that I started by writing out was a book about this man, a man with whom I lived for uh, the first 18 years of my life, but did not know very well, my father. A, a kind of quiet, Slightly remote, slightly depressive, enigmatic man. And I knew a few things about him. And I, I should say I grew up in, I was, I, I was born and raised in Israel. I knew my father was born in a Polish town called Ostro Mazowiecka. I knew he had come to what was pre-state Israel, to Palestine. with a group of children called Yaldei Teheran in Hebrew or Teheran children. So I knew he had come to Palestine through Iran during World War II. I did not think of him nor did he present himself as a Holocaust survivor. Holocaust survivors were the people with the tattoos on their arms, people who had been in camps and to me he was simply an Israeli man Um, who was my father. My father died in uh, 1993, so he died fairly young from uh, yakov Kreutzfeld disease, which is mad cow disease that we know, and, and so a degenerative brain disease, and very shortly after I came here and I studied, I got a PhD, I became a professor, and I didn't really do any research about my father's history um, until 2007. In 2007, uh, so I'm a professor at City College, and I'm at, at a faculty end of the year party, and I have an Iranian American colleague, and the Iranian colleague, American colleague says to me, hey, you know anything about Jewish children who were in Iran during the war? And um, I say, as a matter of fact, I do. Now, if you remember, 2007 was the year of uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's, um when he was a prime minister. And there was all the talk about his Holocaust denials and then a the kind of articles came out about more generally accusing Iran of being complicit in the Holocaust. And at that time, Professor Milani, right here, wrote an article in The Iranian that was a, a kind of defense of Iran uh, during the Holocaust, and I'll just read you a little bit. So he basically, Professor Milani, said um, that he says the facts of, the, of history are just the opposite of what was what was claimed about Iran, and he gave various examples of Iran's um, help to jewish refugees and um, and people persecuted people under the nazis and he ends his article by saying uh, moreover when the nazi killing machines began their slaughter of innocent polish jews thirteen eighty eight jews including eight hundred and seventy one children were moved to tehran where they lived in relative safety until they moved to israel history of history of contemporary iranian jews which is a um, and publication has provided an account of what are called the Tehran children, so Salar re- sh- reads me sh- shows me this basically this article on his computer I 'm like what um, this is this is crazy so um, but when he asked me how did he get how did they get there? who brought them there? what happened to them? I had no idea really you know in, in truth Tehran was it was not even exactly a place in my in my mind. it was just a, a name of these children Tehran children. So that's the origin of this book. So 10 years later um, and many, many drafts and whatnot later, this is, this is the book and it really begins uh, with this quote from Professor Milani in the introduction. But the book that I ended up writing is not just about my father and it's also not just about these nearly 1,000 Tehran children. The book that I ended up writing is about most Polish Jews who survived Nazi extermination. And this is, we, and Professor Malinia and I were just talking about this, and this is kind of ast- astonishing, uh, but uh, to be very crude about the numbers, so th- there were roughly three and a half million Jews in Poland before the war. 90% of them were killed or died during the war. So 350,000 or so survived. Of these 350,000, 250,000, so roughly a quarter million, survived in the way that I describe in the book, which means in, in, in in the Soviet Central Asia, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, and then in Iran, in Palestine, in Lebanon, in India, and other places. So I ended up writing about the majority of Polish Jewish survivors who have never been recognized as survivors. They're not, these are people who have not been commemorated. They have not been, in 1952 there was a reparations agreement between Germany and Israel. These people were not included in the reparation agreement. And they have not, really been studied very much despite about three decades of very intense Holocaust research. I I was was just telling Professor Melanie that uh, the Holocaust Museum in Washington and the Smithsonian are actually going to do an event for this book in June because they have not, I mean the Holocaust Museum right, which is the place for Holocaust memorialization has not really had very much, uh, I mean they have some they had things in their archives, but they didn't really have this as a story. So there, there was no story, and uh, I ended up writing the story, the story of these refugees of the East among whom was my father. And I think um, if, you, if you end up reading the book, you'll see that. So the book is, on the one hand, a kind of huge history book with footnotes, but it's also an intimate story of a daughter and a father and really a kind of second-generation memoir of, of a different kind. And in some ways, a second-generation memoir of a survivor who had the symptoms of a survivor without the story of a survivor. And I wrote my father's story and the story of all these people. So what I want to do um, today is to contemplate this, the fates of these people and, with, this, of course, with a special emphasis on, on Iran. So if we, and, and we can start thinking about the, these, the, this, the fate of these people by imagining two children, a boy and a girl, 12 and 8. The children live in their siblings. They live in, a po- in Poland, uh, a country where the majority of Polish Jews live. This is, this is 1939. They live in a town where 30% of the, of the population is Jewish, 60% during their parents' time, so this is a very Jewish town. The children have never left home, or, or rather, um, the girl has never left her hometown The boy, my father, obviously left his hometown once for a tonsillectomy in Warsaw, which is 60 miles away. So these children grew up in this very sheltered, bourgeois Jewish family in Ostomazowiecka. The family has been in this town for eight generations. So I've also been able to to trace their pre war life. And they've really been in town, in this town, more than most anybody else, including Christian Poles. Now, imagine these children three years later. Of course, I don't have their photos particularly, but this is the photo of the refugees. These are Polish refugees and Polish soldiers of the Andres Army among whom these children are embedded. They are disembarking at Bandar Pahlavi, which is today Bandar Anzali. They are thinner, they weigh less than they did three years earlier. They've been refugees for three years. They are without their parents and without any other adult relatives. In a few weeks, they are collected into a tent camp into the outskirts of Tehran. This tent camp actually Maybe I should, I wanna, sh- I wanna show you the journey. So they're 5,000 miles away from home. And if you can see, this is where they started out, Mazowiecka. then we've gone all the way to the northern Soviet Union, Achangiz, and then all the way south, so through Samarkand, through Turkmenistan, crossing the Caspian Sea, and then now here in Bandaraphafi. So these two children, basically, have never left home, have traversed half the world, basically. And I don't know if people, people here have children. When I started working on this, I have a son, and he was, maybe, he was six, and I would be like, I can't even get him to walk from like the middle of the block to the end of the block, and, you know, I'm looking at five, I mean, it's, it's very astonishing. So the children are taken, the Jewish children are taken to a tent camp in, in the outskirts of Tehran. This is a, the Jewish, what is called the Jewish children's home, is part of a larger Polish refugee camp inside a former Iranian Air Force base in, in, in um, Tope. And they are—they uh, have counselors, and in um, after several months, about seven months, they are—they—they uh, they, they are transferred. They're like transferred to Palestine. We'll talk about that later. But um, after their arrival. They they arrived. I mean most of them arrived. there are two transports in March 1942 and in August 1942. My father came in August 1942 after their arrival, so a month later is is the the Jewish high holidays. And the children are taken to a synagogue in Tehran. This is the Chaim and Daniel synagogue, it still exists, this is actually, it looks the same as as I understand. And um, if you look, this is the Torah ark, and I don't know if anybody here can read Hebrew, but it says, the Synagogue of the European Jews. So this is actually a Persian synagogue that has a part of it has been cordoned off, cordoned off, for the European Jews to be able to pray there because they are Ashkenazi and, and they pray differently than the local Jews. So how did these two children and, and these other and, and others get from Ostroviviec to Tehran? To understand that, um, I'll give you a very, very short history overview. Um, So we know World War II, 1939, Poland is partitioned between the Germans and the Soviets. This is the partition, Warsaw falls on the German side, Bialystok (coughs) falls on the Soviet side. Otrama VHK is really here. It's right next to the border. But by ni- early 1940, about one and a half million Polish Jews live in, within Soviet borders, whether they fled there, like my family. And again, we have to understand that these are very difficult decisions. I mean, they, these people don't know what's gonna happen and they don't know who will be worse, the Soviets or the Germans. But many people flee and many people simply live in those towns, they fall under um, Soviet occupation, and um, about a third of these are deported to the Soviet interior. They're deported. Never mind the reason, and uh, we can talk about that. But they are deported to uh, what they what are called special settlements. So they're not exactly gulags as we know gulags from the literature. They're not supposed to be penitentiary, but in fact they are penitentiary, especially for these, uh, these are mostly urban people, and um, they're, don't, they're not used to c- cutting down trees, that's for sure. Uh, in very, very difficult conditions, this is what it looked like. Uh, and many, many, the Soviets estimate that about 25% of the exiles died right there in the settlements. And this is a probably a conservative set, uh, um, estimate. Within, um, and so people, people are in the settlements in, as we know, in 1949, the German, the Wehrmacht, the German army invades the Soviet Union. After that, the exiles are released from the special settlements by a special decree of Stalin. And what we have to understand, and this is really, um, in one of those like, strange strange, arbitrary fates of history, basically these people are saved by their deportations. Right? Because when the Nazi army invades the Soviet Union, it doesn't get that far into the Soviet interior. So basically when the army invades, they kill those people who are in the, in the border towns, but they don't get this far. So these people are saved by their deportations And um, and are released, and and are sent on a kind of second deportation. This is what the deportation card looks like, to Soviet Central Asia, to Uzbekistan mostly, but also to Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan. They're sent there. I mean, I I interviewed many people, and um, many people say to me. I went there because my, I had asthma and my dad wanted me to take me to a dry place. But it really was not like that. This was the Soviet Union. You were sent to some uh, to a Kazakh family and you would say, you have to go to this stay with this Kazakh family. They had to take you and you had to go there. But still there was a little bit more, um, more uh, leeway. Uzbekistan, Soviet Central Asia is, uh, the situation there is, actually worse than in Siberia, because Soviet Central Asia is the labor front of the Soviet army, which means that their food products are being confiscated in order to feed the Red Army. Not 95%, 100%. And so basically you have a kind of starving land with the refugees at the bottom of this food chain. The situation is very difficult, so when an opportunity arises, for um, the Polish army in exile, so basically mostly, which is consists of mostly of Christian Poles with some Jewish Poles. When an opportunity arises for a thousand or so Jewish children to be evacuated to Iran together with the Polish army, my grandparents and many other Polish Jews jump on it and say basically we'll send our children and we will not Um, whatever happened, maybe we won't be saved, but our children will be saved. Uh, And of course, as you can imagine, this was a very, very difficult decision. Um, The separation from the children, and I think, you know, today we see children being separated from parents, which, you know, is just awful, Um, and this is a very, very traumatic moment. that is described in very many memoirs as a traumatic moment, and um, and um but they do it uh and there's a, it's a this it's a very sad moment however when the children a week later arrive in iran um this is a, a kind of iran is described as a kind of heaven they've come to heaven more or less uh, but these by the way are um Jewish refugees in Bukhara in 1944. So the major, basically the majority of Jewish refugees end up staying for the duration of the war in Central Asia. And as you can see they're holding actually a Yiddish paper. I mean they basically <coughs> remain there and many of them remain there even, even after the war including my, my grandparents. This is Bandar Pahlavi in uh, 1942 or 3. and. Uh, I'm going to I want to read to you one of the nicest sources that I have is a travel diary that one of the children wrote a 14 so this is a, a, a Jewish born child from Warsaw he wrote a travel diary in Polish I translated it into English and this is what he writes about his arrival in Iran on the day that they arrived His name is Emil Landau On the historic day of August 16 1942 in 40 degrees and some weather, the first group of passengers leaves on the tugboat's dock and, after a half hour sail, gets to the small port Bandar Pahlavi. Difficult to transmit in writing our first impression. Each one feels as if he is born again, has come to a place out of this world. The port's waters are littered with colorful boats, the surroundings are mowed lawns and flower beds. Rows of impressive Chevrolets and Studebakers wait for transport. And everything seems good and beautiful. Everything smiles together with the Persians who gaze at us with pity. After we are on shore, everyone hugs, everyone." Um, and, you know, this is an incredibly moving description. And there are many such descriptions. No, but now um, the Studebaker i don't know if anybody can guess where they came from. Um, America, right? So the the fact—and this is when the land lease agreement is signed. Basically, American aid is starting to be shipped to the Allies, and much of that aid is shipped in the form of trucks, military trucks that are shipped through Iran. So this is a Life magazine ad from 1940. At 43, uh, in the background is Iran, and it says Studebaker, Studebaker military trucks. Like our Yanks, are certainly seeing the world. And of course, yeah, so you have these Jewish Polish children, including my father, who actually uh, so the family owned a brewery and they had Studebaker trucks. And here he's in Iran. He, the first thing that he's seeing are the Studebaker trucks. Um, it's one of those crazy wartime. Um, Coincidence, coincidence. Um, now, the Iran that my father comes, comes to, um, as many of you uh, in this room know, um, in the beginning of the war was a neutral state, right? A neutral state with, basically, with strong ties to Germany, in the sense that uh, we have German engineers, um, working in Iran, helping to build roads and, and, um, and railroads and so on in the 1920s and 1930s and that cooperation doesn't really stop with the rise of Hitler. Um, so in Iran in 1939, 1940, you have um, pro-Nazi uh, Iranian intellectuals You have pro-Nazi Shia clerics. You have a a, a a racist publication called El Bustan. Um, You have that. And at the same time, Iran, throughout the 1930s, is letting in German-Jewish refugees, German-Jewish and Austrian-Jewish refugees, which basically it considers just German. Um, So there are uh, categories, professional categories, that are developed which are doctors, engineers, agricultural specialists, foremen, architects, mechanics, musicians, artisans, and people who fit those categories are in in many cases allowed to come starting with the rise of Hitler. And I've looked through these documents and there are many requests for entry visas as well as, uh, and and some of them are granted. And uh, I was telling Professor Milani that since the book came out a month ago, And since then, I'm I'm really getting a lot of emails from people who say, oh, my family was in Tehran. Um, I was born in Tehran. Um, And so um, I think uh, there were not a a small number. So you have this this sort of German-Jewish community. You have other Iranian, uh, other uh, Jewish refugees. You have refugees from Iraq. You have refugees from the Caucasus. You have refugees from Bukhara. that that fled from the Soviets in in the beginning with the Soviet revolution. Um, And now, um, and then they're all there. Um, So Iran is, you know, maybe like today, a very kind of split place. In September 1942, as we know, so following, uh, in September 1942, Anglo-Soviet forces invade Iran, depose the 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 Shah, whom they see as you know too friendly towards Germany, and and, and anoint his his son uh, Muhammad Reza Pahlavi. At that point, allied soldiers come to Iran these refugees, really Iran becomes a kind of a, a center of gravity for, um, for Allied soldiers, British soldiers, Soviet soldiers, and of course we know it's their zones of influences, as well as these refugees. These, these refugees now, ab- I, would sh- I should say about over 100,000 Polish refugees, Polish Christian refugees come to Iran, and among them about 5,000 Jewish refugees uh, among whom are these children, but again, as I was telling Professor Milani, I'm really getting the sense that there are more of them. That there were stowaways, that there were people who entered um, as, you know, they put a cross on them and they entered as as Christian Poles, but they were Jewish and so on. Um, they, they they seem to be many such stories. So, um this is um this is um these are the people who come and um if you read in my book you'll see i mean there are many many testimonies of just beautiful stories of the receptions that these people receive it's a very spontaneous reception because the the people who are the the persians people in pahlavi have no idea it's not that somebody prepares them and somebody says you know, tomorrow a ship of refugees will come and so on. The ship comes and these children walk off the ship and they look just horrible. And I I should say that this is, sorry, these are, I mean, they are in very, very terrible shape. I mean, they've been, they've undergone extreme starvation. These are just some photos. Uh, They have eye diseases. Um, and, um, and, and, and other, and, and um, I mean, basically, the British colonel, colonel who was in charge of them reports that they're, they're 40% of them are malaria cases. General Anders, who is the chief of staff of the Polish army, says that he anticipates that 25% of them will die in Iran. Um, they're in very bad shape. But they're also extremely happy and people see, individuals see them, and people just respond in this kind of human way without really any, not in any organized way. There are descriptions of um, like people throwing stuff at them and they say, I thought like somebody was throwing stone at me and then I realized there was like it was like a little napkin with like candy inside it and, and so on. Um, so very uh, spontaneous beautiful hospitality that is described in multiple, multiple sources. They um, they are, as I said, um, in, in very bad shape. Um, I don't know if people know uh, Khosrow Sinai's The Lost Requiem. This is actually a Persian film about the Polish refugees um, it's, it's it's available on YouTube, basically. And although this looks, this is the ad for it, so it makes it seem like it's a really happy film, but it's really actually a very sad film. And it begins um, with Sinai walking through Dulab, which is a Catholic cemetery in Tehran. And Sinai says, I'm looking at these graves, and there are so many graves, and they all have the death, they're in Polish, and they all have death dates that are between 1941 and 19... 19- 45 and um, and I started to wonder who these are and then I discovered there are these Polish refugees and this is, but what Sinai doesn't know that there are also Jewish refugees among them and this is the refugee, this is the grave of a little girl um, who is, and this is from Tehran's Jewish cemetery and there are many such graves in Tehran's Jewish cemetery that are still there um, and um, and, um, and, uh, and, one, and one can see them. I should say that, um, and I wanna talk a little bit about my own process of working on this book, but uh, I, I'm an Israeli citizen, so I couldn't travel to Iran, um, but my colleague, who I just mentioned, or I started mentioning, was able to, to travel there several times and take photos and research there and so on, so this is a photo that he, that he took. Um, I, the conditions of, of these children are, is bad, but um, they do, uh, and the condition of the Jewish children is especially bad because they were within this larger convoy of Polish refugees, they were discriminated against, they didn't get as much aid, they didn't get as much food, they didn't get as much clothing and so on. So, um, But they are cared for in Tehran hospitals both in um, allied hospitals but also in local hospitals. And this is um, Dr. Rukhla Sapir who is a a Persian Jewish doctor um, who actually contracts typhus while caring for the refugees and dies. Um, And he's a very young man, I think he's 30. Um, and as we, as some of you know, that there's the hospital in Tehran, a Jewish hospital is actually still named in, after him, the, the Sapir, Dr. Sapir Hospital, which exists, still, still exists today. Um, in, um, in Yom Kippur, as I said, these children are taken to the synagogue, and I wanted to read to you a passage from the book where, um, where they are taken to the synagogue because it's it's one of the most fascinating things is to see this this encounter, the meeting point between Persian Jews and these European Jews, and you know, needless to say that these communities had not previously had any contact. Um, so I'll just read you a short passage. So a week for Yom Kippur, the children were taken to Tehran synagogues. The idea was the Tehran committee. The Tehran committee is a committee of local Persian Jews and r- Jewish refugees who are in uh, German Jewish refugees and Iraqi Jewish refugees who form a committee to help these refugees. So they bring them uh, clothing and they bring them, they take them sometimes for dinner. They actually, believe it or not, take them to see the great dictator in uh, in its in a Tehran cinema, I mean c- I can't imagine what that would be like um, but they do and, and children describe that. Um, so he they have this idea and they say we're going to bring the children to a Tehran synagogue and this is going to be kind of a fundraiser. The, the Persian Jewish community is a very poor community at the time and they really um, begin to acquire wealth mostly after the war Um, But they say we're going to bring these children in and people are going to be so moved that they'll, they'll give something and and indeed that was the case. So um, I have another great source that I have are these memoirs that were written by a rabbi, a Polish rabbi who was also a refugee and he wrote an account of his time in Iran. So uh, for Yom Kippur, the children were taken to Tehran synagogues. The idea was the Tehran committees not only to remove the children from the depressing camp atmosphere, but to present them, particularly the young ones, to worshippers at Tehran synagogues in order to collect alms for the young orphans. It was decided that the children would visit a few of the 18 synagogues inside the Mahala the, the, the Jewish quarters, the makeshift Iraqi synagogue at the Alian school, and the Chaim and Daniel synagogue, which I just showed you. Uh, it, uh, let me skip something. Um, so I describe how they actually walked for basically, basically they walked, it was about seven miles. They walked for, for a long time, uh, so the older children walked. Um, and I was able to trace the whole route through La Lazare Street and everything, and I, so I have the, I understand the whole thing. Uh, and um, and um, and they walk into the synagogue, and um, so the locals, the local gave them the children little gifts and sat with them for Kol Nidrei prayer, which is the prayer for Yom Kippur. Then, when they noticed the younger children were absent, they sent a car to fetch them, despite what even their secular counselors knew as the strict prohibition against driving on Yom Kippur. Everyone was already seated by the time the five- and six-year-olds and the toddlers walked into the synagogue. So they really toddlers, they're like three-year-olds. When the worshippers saw the children, they all began to weep. Tears rolled down the men's cheeks, and the women went, wept violently. This is a quote from uh, from this memoir, and it, and it's really I mean it's, it's a, I just don't want to belabor you, but it's a very long quote and it's incredibly moving and sad. Um, and I'll say more about this meeting of these two communities, but um, I, I want to say a few things about uh, my own process about working about this book on this book because. The book is also about that. So the book is, it's about the past, but it's also about the present, the present, my present, which is uh, the present in which I travel to those places. I travel to Poland twice. I travel to uh, Russia, to these areas where people were exiled, which are still very Soviet areas, even though Soviet Union no longer exists. Um, I travel to Uzbekistan. I traveled to Israel, I traveled to archives, I traveled twice to Stanford, <laughs> to the Hoover Institute um, that has the documents of the Polish uh, army in exile, um, and to all kinds of archives, and Salar traveled to Iran and researched in Iran. So it took a long time to, to do that, and especially in many of these places, um, you know, they're not re- areas that it's, where it's easy to research, uh, in, in, in Poland, in Russia, uh, I mean, people don't just talk to you and tell you what they think um, archives are not fully accessible um, and in Uzbekistan I couldn't even really travel as an independent researcher, I had to sort of pretend I was a tourist on a, the tour of the Silk Road or <laughs> something like that and, um, and I had a kind of clandestine research assistant who was researching for me but it was very difficult it's not that you can go there and say I want to see you know and give archives, and they'll say, "Sure, yes. here you go." Um, and so that part was very hard. Um, it's also very hard because um, of these of, of these different ideological. I mean, it's not it's not that you could just sort of dig down across seven decades of communism and Zionism and American liberalism and Polish revisionism and all these different ideologies that shape the way we see the past and kind of like go into this well and dig it up and here it is. Um, What's, I think, so all of that took a long time but really what was hardest in many ways is that and I think this is, people keep asking me why was this story not not known before but the truth is that pieces of it were known. It's just that collective memory is a national political thing. So they were known, parts of it are known in different places according to, to what the place, what that country needs to remember. And so for example, so in Israel, uh, the, the Tehran children are, this story is known, um, but it's known as the story of the kind of rescue of Jewish children and, uh, and their arrival, their evacuation to, to the future Jewish state, right? Um, these children arrived in Palestine on February 19, 1943. So they're in the middle of the war. They are the first group of people who are coming from there, from hell, from the war. They're children and um, people go nuts. I mean, they have uh, basically school is canceled and all the children are in the street, on both side of the tracks, they're waiting for them. This is my actually the cover of my book is is that so these are the local children looking at the children coming um, and um, this becomes um, a kind of um, not only a celebration but for many people a raison d'etre for the need for a Jewish state right so some people are just like you know this is you know we have refugees and we need a place for them to come and so on uh, and this is how. This is stories. remembered. this is what, how I knew it too, growing up in Israel. So it's kind of rescue story. And in fact, I think I almost had a fantasy of it's, it's almost like these children were airlifted from Poland to Palestine, and in a pretty kind of happy story. In Poland, this is remembered completely different. This is remembered as a story of the kind of the, the, the Soviet deportations, the Soviet persecution of Poles. So all that's remembered is uh, this is a story about the kind of evil Soviet Union and what it did to Polish citizens. So th- and this is a monument for the what what, what I call the, the the murdered and fallen of the East. So this is a, mur- a, a monument for these refugees. Of course, as you can see, it's all full of crosses. But in fact, most of the refugees were Jewish. So uh, this is a kind of case in a way. This is something of a case of revisionism or at least a case of skewed proportions. There is a, star, a little star of David in there. You can't see it. Um, but um, but this, the emphasis here, in other words, in, the, in, the, in Polish collective memory, is on deportations. There is no... The story of Iran, of Polish refugees in Iran, is a little bit known, but really not. I mean, the fact that bo- most of these people actually left Central Asia and ended up in Iran is not very well known. And certainly what is not known is that the Polish Christian refugees, most of them ended up in Palestine. So what happens is they go to Iran and then from Iran they're evacuated to Palestine and they're sort of hosted by the Jews of Palestine. So they go to Hebrew University and they have Polish schools and they have all kinds of, they study opera um, whatnot in, uh, so this is a Polish school in Tel Aviv in 1940. So all this the kind of uh, migrations of Polish citizens into the Middle East, that's not part of the Polish story at all. And of course we know that uh, in the Soviet Union there is not even a memory of these, I mean there is a memory, but there's no commemoration of the deportations altogether, so that's not even part of that story. Um, And in Iran, I I think, I, I don't know how much people know, but I think there is some knowledge of the Polish refugees uh, and *Lost Requiem*, the movie, I think, has um, has brought that there. But there is—I don't think there is any awareness, a lot of awareness that there were Jews among among them. So, what my book ended up doing is kind of marrying all these different archives and these different national stories to kind of tell the complete story. So I went—I kind of hopped between these different archives and these different national stories to really tell a kind of global history of the Holocaust which is not a history that's set into inside Nazi occupied Europe but it really involves this whole other complex geopolitical, World, which is um, the world that has to having to do with the Soviet Empire and the British Empire and the Iranian government and Iranian people and the Persian Jewish community and the Zionist Agency of Palestine and American Jewish aid organizations. And I kind of work through all their archives and put this whole story together. After I was so, and and some of it is really just being able to shake off the biases and the ideologies and the ways we think, and especially as academics, you know, we have certain ways of thinking. When I was able to shake a lot of it, a a lot of it uh, off, I understood a few things. One thing I understood was that I understood that this journey and the extent of my father's suffering and all these refugees, and that, that this was not a kind of. Um, you know, air, air, airlift from Poland to Palestine, that this was a very, very protracted, um, arbitrary um, path of suffering and, and, and so on. I also understood how arbitrary our identities are, or, or people that, you know, because we know when you, we only know the present. My father, to me, was an Israeli guy. But really, when you track down refugee stories, every point of transit is also an end point to so many different people. So people stayed in Siberia. When I was in Russia, I realized that many people, they were released from these settlements and then they said, where are we gonna go? It's a war, maybe we have small children, maybe somebody gave us a cow or something and we said, okay, we'll we'll live the war here. And then they got trapped behind the Iron Curtain, they became Russians or Soviets and then Russians people stayed in Uzbekistan. So I interviewed this woman. This was a po- Polish Jewish woman, just like my father and my aunt. And she married, um, she got. She came there and she lost her family. She met an Uzbek man and she married him and she's an Uzbek woman now. And I interviewed her in Samarkand. Um, and people stayed in Iran. Um, this guy, Reza Nikpur, his mother is Polish. His father was a Polish refugee. His father is Iranian. He still lives in Iran. They own a shoe store, as I understand it. In fact, he has a little miniature uh, makeshift archive in the basement of the shoe store with all the, with the documents of, of these um, of these refugees. And, and, and since, again, since I, uh, the book came out, several people have shown up in my talks and told me these kind of stories, basically, st- mostly stories of Polish, including Polish Jewish women who married Iranian men, and remained in Iran sometimes until seventy nine. Um, so basically, had children there, and those children are now are now here. So they became Iranian, and that's a kind of simple, but um, I don't know, somehow very startling insight in the in the in the nineteen forty the Soviet government was actually actively encouraging people to adopt children, to adopt refugee and evacuate children. So this is, this is actually an Uzbek blacksmith who adopted 10 children from different nationalities, as you can see, including um, the Korean, Korean children who were also deported, uh, Jewish, um, from every kind, and he was considered a great patriot, and there was all these articles about him in Pravda and so on. So these children became Uzbek. Um, in uh, in Iran, where um, basically you have so you have Jewish children, Jewish Polish children, Christian Polish children, and this is really in Iran is where very to the, to a large degree the Jewish. Polish and the the Christian Polish identity is completely separate. Um, Christian children for the most part are taken to Isfahan and are taken to um, they are housed in all kinds of convents there and in the the house there is a kind of huge villa that was owned by um, Prince Sarem Odole who was the former he was a kind of pro-British former governor of Isfahan, and he gave his, uh, his residence. So these children are, are, um, are housed there, and they live in, a, I mean, there is a Persian photographer called Parisa Damadan, Damandan, who has a book called Children of Isfahan, and she, she says they lived in behind closed doors in a Polish environment. She says they really live in a kind of uh, miniature Poland, the way she describes it, um, they study Polish uh, language and and uh, and, and it's a, it's a very nationalistic um, education um, and they're, they're treated very well and so on um, and um, and so Iran become like sort of Iran's multi ethnic makeup actually sort of allows for these um, for this kind of Poland of of Isfahan to develop in, in there as well as also. Then, uh, this is true for the Jewish children's home as well so this is um, this is my father um, right here who's the one with the hair and um, it actually pleases me that he had hair because uh, the children had of course tremendous lice and i don't know somehow he was able to keep his hair um, so this this is they have a kind of Zionist uh, socialist Zionist camp. The counselors are recruited from among the refugees these are young the councils are slightly older than the children they're in their twenties they were they were in sort of Zionist youth movements in poland they're, so they're there and um and as i said they are um they are um soon evacuated um I wanted to read you another passage from this um from this the rabbi that I told you about, who describes his experiences in Tehran, because they're just uh, incredibly moving passages. So, first of all, this is how he describes walking to the synagogue. Uh, this is a di- he's walking to a different synagogue, which is an an Iraqi synagogue, a synagogue that was that was uh, that was put together by Iraqi refugees. So he says. It is a special feeling a man has after an interruption of two and a half years when he goes to pray publicly in a communal synagogue with an ark and a Torah Torah scroll. Only a Spanish converso would understand it. It's been 27 months since I had heard the reading of the Torah. Months where every public prayer was a crime against the laws of the land. And here, in Tehran, a man walks with his head high, a tallit, you know, uh, under his arm in a bustling city amid a crowd of people, dressed festively, walking to the synagogue in the wealthy quarter. So he, he describes at length sort of walking in the streets and there are all these people there. And um, and he gets to this makeshift synagogue. This is the Allianz school with a, with a Jewish, uh, this was a, a French-based Jewish um, school chain. and They had a school in Tehran and in the courtyard they, these Iraqi Jews made a synagogue. And this is how he describes it. This is a little bit of a long quote that I think is just beautiful. At the large courtyard of the Aliyan school by the pool, these wealthy Arabs, so he calls them basically Arab Jews, arranged a spot for them to pray during the high holidays. They spread carpets, brought in a lounge and armchairs, a Torah ark, a table for Torah reading, and tents for protection from the sun. And thus, a temporary synagogue was erected. For the women, they placed seats in the balcony surrounding the garden so that they they too could hear the prayer. I admit that prayer in this place left me, left a unique impression on me. There was nothing about it of the atmosphere inside our synagogues during high holidays. Our synagogues, meaning like Polish synagogues. No trace of the seriousness, the high-mindedness, the dread, the awe that characterized our prayers. The men dressed in pressed white suits sat in a half circle around the pool as if they were in a ball at a country club. The cool air, the pools with the tiny goldfish, and the, and the tent above only strengthened this impression. Many small children, some without a hat, ran around the yard, but they did not interrupt their prayers. I saw and thought about what I saw. Perhaps these Baghdadi Jews have preserved Yom Kippur prayer in its original form. Perhaps it is appropriate to celebrate Yom Kippur with joy and happiness, to send flowers to each other, and to act not as slaves dreading their rabbi, but as children who have sinned before their father and know that all will be forgiven." And I, I found this, this passage very extraordinary, uh, and, and I think, um, you know, if I would have read this passage at the early on, just at the beginning of my research, I would have been, oh, you know, this is like this kind of like colonial mentality of this European, Jew who is kind of looking down on, on these local Jews and you know they're calling, calling them sort of saying they don't pray p- properly and so on, but I really understood it knowing what I knew about what these refugees went through, the kind of suffering. This, this man who basically was actually, very, he was a, not only um, a rabbi but a professor and who basically has lost everything, who has nothing, who has no home, who has no family, who has no wealth. Who has no synagogue, no community, and he's seeing these people, and I think he really sees—he really does see, you know, maybe I mean, this is okay. You know, maybe we just should really have empathy and and feel more, um, you know, less judgmental and less harsh, um, and just just be. Um, and, 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 and just kind of cherish whatever we can cherish, you know, with family and beauty and mercy and forgiveness. Um, and, I, and I really do think that he saw this as a moment of tranquility and that he embraced this vision of, of a more merciful and empathic God. And, and, uh, and, th- and I see this in other descriptions too of people have these moments in Iran where they're like, I don't know, the sun is setting. I mean, they're just, there's something very soft because I think being a refugee and having gone through the experience reshuffles everything, right? Um, and I, I think as I was researching this book and as, as I continued working on it more and more, this really became my vision as well. I mean, I, I feel like um, I developed, you know, extreme, a lot of empathy towards it. everybody. So not only the Jewish refugees, because this is, I didn't actually just write a story about Jewish refugees. I wrote a story about other refugees, the, the Polish refugees at large. I wrote a story about the host nations, about Iran, uh, about the communities, about rescuers, about aid organizations, uh, about ordinary citizens. Um, and, uh, and and this is a larger history. Stalin deported 33 million people. So this is also, there were many, many people were deported. Um, I was very, one of the things, this by the way is, is um, Rabbi Zev Hirschberg, I forgot to turn the slides, but uh, this, is, this is this man. Um, but I, I should say that um, in my own research, so in every one of those places, I had a host and somebody who helped me, including uh, starting off with Salar, who, who of course, was instrumental. Uh, but also with Magda Gawin uh, was my host in Poland, and she actually um, is a kind of nationalistic Catholic historian who just ended up being a a person from my father's hometown, I mean, who helped me, Um, and uh, this is uh, my host in Russia. And again, the areas that I went to, this is I think the most fun chapter in this book because this was this guy was um, just kind of a mini oligarch and he would help me, he helped open doors in Russia, that doors that were not previously open to researchers uh, and this was my research assistant in Uzbekistan who is a Korean Uzbek who lives there and you know J- Jewish history and especially the history of the Holocaust is very is a very, um, you know, it's a very heavy weight to carry. And in, in that sense, I, I, I you know I didn't want to carry that weight either. I, I was, I would rather write about uh, you know, British romanticism. I mean, I'm an English scholar, English lit scholar, but, uh, and it's very helpful and moving when when other people help you carry it, and especially non-Jews help you carry it. And this was maybe the best par- part of this journey. Um, in, in a way, starting with Professor Melanie's like, uh, um, article and throughout with these, I mean, Sergei Kim actually is a Presbyterian minister in Uzbekistan. That's just not, you know, that's a dangerous thing to do and it was a dangerous thing for him to help me. Uh, and so the, um, the help that I received and the dialogues that I had with people was, was extraordinary. At the same time you know, this is not a kind of we are the world book in the sense that, you know, when you want, I mean, you want people to help you, but the person who helps you has their own history, right? So, the, of, of, of uh, you know, Salar was a refugee of, the, of 1979. Um, Sergey Kim's family, is, they were deported, went through Korean, Uzbeks went through horrible deportations. Uh, Magda Gowen's aunt was, a great aunt was killed by the Nazis. Um, and so we have, so people have their own stories of, of their own traumas and they're all, and those stories sometimes clash, in, right? So Iran and Israel today, as we know, and also Polish and Christian, um, Polish Christian and Polish Jewish narratives um, back then and in some ways now. And I think my book, offers maybe a, a third option, or, or, or it's a, it offers an option of, I mean, of dialogue that works through these impasses and through the difficulties of, of such a dialogue. And that has been, I think, the most exhilarating part of, uh, of this book. Thank you. <clears throat> so, because we have time for questions, right? Yes. Thank you for your fascinating talk. It was fantastic. Thank you. Uh,
1: sad, but fantastic. <laughs> I have a couple of small questions. You talked about your father as a survivor of Holocaust. I'm wondering if you, your father had, like, the tattoo number on the things, one of the questions. The other one, when uh, Soviet Union deported people, why they sent in that way to Iran? Why not from the south to Uzbekistan or to uh, Azerbaijan to Iran. And then the third question, when your father and the group was were in uh, in Iran, how many years uh, were there? Because your father is like a, like a 18 years old, a guy kind of in that last
0: picture. No, Fourteen. Fourteen but did they get adopted by
1: anyone or just all those years they lived in, a, in just
0: themselves? Yeah, so the first question is, uh, um, so they no, they did not have tattoos and they were not, these are the people who fled, uh, I mean, in the case of my family, fled into, they, they fled from the Germans, so they fled into the Soviet Union, so they were not interned in concentration camps. And one of the things, I mean one of the, you know, the terrible ironies of this story is that, um, so in the case of my family they are um, a huge clan in the town that they're from. A really huge clan, like 70 people. Many of them flee. When they get to the border, some of them, like my grandfather, after a while, after about six months, and they're living in the Soviet Union, and you know, there's a refugee crisis on the border. Actually, maybe I can just go back to the map and I'll show you. They, um, they live on, the, they, um, after, so after six months or so, oh no, I went too far. So after six months or so, They decide, my grandfather decides, he's going to go back to the German side. So they're basically right right here. They're from here, they flee, and they're right here, okay, on the border. Not only them, but the, the uncles and other members of the family. After about six months, my grandfather says, I've had enough of these Soviets, conditions here are terrible, I want to go back to my home, I'm going to go back to the German side. Because you have to remember that German Jews already survived a German occupation in World War I, and they're thinking, well, you know, it wasn't that bad. We survived. We'll go back. Because he decides to go back, that's the reason they're arrested and deported, right? So they get there, basically, the NKVD, the Soviet secret police, boards them on trains, and tells them, yeah, you're going back home, get on. And, but the trains go east instead of west, okay? That's what, what, the stupid decision to go back to to the Nazi side saves them. The ones who make the smart decision, which is, we'll stay on the Soviet side, which is a large part of my father's family, basically they remain right here and they kind of do okay. They survive in the beginning and they... um, in the case of my uncle, my great uncle, he—they know, you know—they know something about beer. They, he starts being a beer supervisor or something like that here. When the German army, when the Wehrmacht invades the Soviet Union, the first thing they do is they kill the, the Jews who are here, who are in these on the border. Either they kill them right away, or they put them in ghettos and then they deport them to concentration camps. So those are the people who get deported to concentration camps. The people who get deported to the special settlements and the gulags are not, they they fled from the Nazis. Um, Your second question of what happens to them in Iran, so as I said, most of the children who are part of, so there are different faiths, but most of the children who are in that tent camp that I showed you end up being evacuated to Palestine after about seven months, okay? So they don't stay in Iran that long. They stay in Iran for about 6-7 months. Some children stay a little bit longer, there are a few transports. Some children, some Jewish children who are in part of the Polish camps and are not, are not in the Jewish camps end up being sometimes evacuated to, um, to uh, India, to uh, Lebanon, uh, some East Africa, all kinds of places. Some children, there are stories, even though I haven't been able to trace these children, but I have been, Iranian Jews have told me that some children were adopted by Iranian Jewish families, a few children, Um, so they don't, but I haven't been able to trace any of them. Some Iranian, some Polish Jewish adults stay in Iran for the duration of the war, as I said, and some of them to this day, I guess. But I don't know if there was another question, but... How long your
1: father in Iran for these Seven months. Just seven
0: months. Yeah. Yes.
1: Uh, it's my understanding that um, when Khomeini came into power in 1979, that his justification for allowing Jews to live in Iran to this very day, um, yet at the same time when they're calling for the destruction of Israel, is just that, separation, that these are Jews of Iran and um, completely separate from, if you will, the Zionists, the Jews. Uh, do you, this might be completely unfair. Do you think that at that time, 79, would his, did he have knowledge, do you think, of even this experience of these, say, you know, 1,000 plus, Uh, Jews that were essentially saved by Iran, and if so, do you think that even could
0: have influenced that edict that he provided at that time? Well, you know, the interesting thing, I don't remember if I have these slides here, the interesting thing that happens, and this is always, I think with refugees, there are always these unintended consequences, because they they the, um, the refugees come to a place, they're changed by the place and they, they change the place that they come to. And when these, after these children came, in the foot, in, in the, after these children came basically, Jewish American organizations came to Iran to help these children and to help other, and then they stayed in Iran. So they sort of discovered Iran um, and this is, um, in fact, Iran becomes Tehran becomes the base from which packages are sent aid packages are sent to refugees in the Soviet Union. So this is this is Tehran, 1943, 1944. Zionist, people, representatives of the Jewish Agency of Palestine, also come to Iran and also stay in Iran. And I don't know if people know this, but um, the uh, in the post-war period in the 50s and especially the 60s and the 70s, there are tens of thousands of Israelis working in Iran. In some ways, the Israelis replace the Germans as in the engineers and agricultural specialists and so on who are helping um, and, and doing things in Iran. And so that, the I think the seed of that begins with these children, with these refugees, because You have to remember um, that, um, so for example, these people right here, Soleil Bonnet is a kind of construction brigade that was based in Palestine. These guys were working for the Anglo-Iranian oil company in when the children were there. And some of them were Zionists, some of them were not Zionists, but they're interacting with these children they are interacting with the local population and in many ways when um, the representatives of the Zionist agency of Palestine come to Iran they are discovering little by little they realize that the people who were their their people right the reserves of the Zionist movement who were basically Polish Jewish youth who were part of the were, were in youth movements in Palestine they're realizing they're, uh, they're, they're gonna die, they're gonna be murdered, and they will not exist anymore. And they're thinking, who are gonna be our reserves? And then they sort of turn around, and they say, well, they're like Iranian Jews here, and they start having contact with Iranian Jews. So all of these networks start with these with these refugees. Um, now, so they were very present. I mean, I, so I don't know, that doesn't really answer your question. Um, and m- maybe Professor Melanie knows, I don't know if Khomeini would have known about these refugees, but um, I think he knew of the Jews in Iran, Jews have lived in Iran for 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 a very long time, um, and um, and and that the synagogue that I showed you, the Dan- Chaim and Daniel Synagogue, is still a synagogue that operates. It has a very very small constituency, but uh, I have photos from there and so on. People go there and in in the high holidays and so on. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could tell me. Between Iranian Jews and Jewish
1: refugees, what were the perceptions they had of one another? Um,
0: did the children interact in any sort of like educational way? Um, so, if you can kind of talk about yeah. those sort of interactions and perceptions. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, the the children, these children at least, were uh, were in this uh, this the tent camp and they were not really, they were, here and there, like I said, they would be taken to movies or they would be taken to Shab- Shabbat dinners at people's homes. I think sometimes they would be taken for like a, a whole weekend or something. But they didn't go to Persian schools. They were, In fact, they weren't really, didn't go to any school. I mean, the, they basically were sort of in this camp um, getting a little bit of Jewish education but not that much of it in the sense that their counselors were mostly um, they were kind of so- socialist uh, socialist um, from, from the socialist Zionist movement so they weren't um, they, they and they were very young and so on so they were kind of they would have these drills and so on um, they I, I think um the interaction is very, um, when there is an interaction there is a total fascination. I think there's a total fascination between the two sides. In uh, in, in Hirschberg's descriptions, and I can, I can give you um, that essay, is, I um, mean, he describes at length kind of what people eat and what, and um, one thing that he's very fascinated by is how he feels like the, the Persian Jewish children are very Respectful and obedient to their parents, and he's sort of saying, you know, our youth is not like that. They're so rebellious, and um, and he's just the way he watches how the children treat their their father, and so on. Um, so uh, you do you do have that. Um, there are people who live in in uh, in Tehran, like I said, more people who are stowaways, people who are with not part of this group. Um, they they don't they don't have a lot of contact with uh, they live in kind of like these refugee c- communities. Yes,
1: uh, thank you so much. It's uh, fascinating, and I'm really happy you're is finding an audience beyond that. My question is, what happened to your father's
0: younger sister? I mean, they, they, they came together. In fact, it was there was also a, a cousin who was so the three children came together to. Um, to Palestine, and they they were raised um, in a kibbutz. Let me see if I know. Yeah, this is my father. In oh, I'm very bad with this uh, technology. Uh, he was raised in a kibbutz, which is a collective settlement in uh, northern Israel. And um, my aunt, you know, I'm very I'm very sad to say that she passed away um, six months ago and I was really hoping she would be alive for, to see this book come out. She was very, very helpful to me. Um, this is, by the way, an Uzbek family who... I was able to trace where my, the, the kind of village that my father was in and these actually the people who lived there. And, and they were incredibly sweet. And they, What they said is that they, they remembered... The, 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 sto- the stories of these refugees is, is kind of told to them by their parents and grandparents. Um, and, and uh, it, was really, it was really wonderful. One, they actually, uh, so I, I told you that my father died from, from uh, mad cow disease and we always wondered, um, there were very few cases of these in Israel, we always wondered where he contracted this and now I think following my research, probably in Uzbekistan, what these guys told me is that how they were told that these refugees, they were, they were so hungry that they, that they, they basically got off the trains and they started eating like live frogs and and, and things like that. So, um, you know, he must have eaten something poisonous there. Uh, but, um, so, so, they, so they, they were basically, they were raised in, um, in the Kibbutz and then lived in, in Israel. So were lives, all three of them. Their cousin is still alive. Yes?
1: Uh, two questions. I may have missed this, um, the, the children, your dad and uh, his sister came, but the parents, were they not offered the opportunity
0: to come? Yes, they were not offered the opportunity to come because basically, I mean this is a very critical question, uh, so basically the Polish army in exile was allowed to evacuate from the Soviet Union to Iran with the idea, so basically the Polish government exile, which was in London, convinced based the Soviets that they have to let the army evacuate because if they don't let the army evacuate, the soldiers will just die of hunger before they fight anybody. That's how it started. Then they, everybody wanted to get out of the Soviet Union, so they said, okay, then we'll allow the, Soviet, the soldiers' families. And then kind of the circles of civilians became larger and larger. As a rule, Jews, unless they were part of the Anders army, and there are very few Jews in the Anders army, were not allowed, the Soviets saw Jews, they did not see them as Polish citizens. The Soviets didn't allow them to be evacuated. The Poles didn't want to take them out because they, you know, for, for their own reasons, I mean they wanted to have a, a kind of ethnically Christian Polish state in the post-war period, so they preferred that the Jews stay in the Soviet Union. The British didn't want the Jews to be evacuated because they felt like if they're evacuated, they'll make it to Palestine, and they were already dealing with Arab-Jewish conflict there. So, in other words, none of these entities had the motivation, let's say, to, to, so in other words, uh, so they were not allowed, the parents were not allowed, taking the children out was a kind of humanitarian thing that was negotiated. Uh, but people did get out, I mean, in, in in all kinds of, in all kinds of ways. Um, yeah.
1: follow on, so, maybe you don't know, but how do you think this all affected
0: your dad? Did, did you ever learn from him on, you know, <coughs> what that was like? And yeah, you know, my, as I started out by saying, my father didn't say a word about what he went through. I sort of knew You know the story that I just told you about um, the fact that some of the family decided to stay and they got killed, and the other side, so and that's kind of a little bit of the philosophy I grew up on, which is not a good philosophy, right? It's very nihilistic, which has been whatever decision you make, it means nothing because, you know, uh, at the end, fate will will decide. So, um, but no, he really didn't talk about the war, and he didn't talk about Bef- what happened before the war, and I think one of the problems, and uh, it, Professor Milani and I were talking about this before, is that when you have no story, then you no know larger story, in a way you don't even know you have a story. In, in, in other words, um, if we, we know about Auschwitz, right, so if, if, if I discovered that my father was an Auschwitz survivor, I would have read Primo Levi. I would have read Art Spiegelman. I would have known what that means to be in Auschwitz, but there was no story of this as, as a kind of as a, as a story. And so people didn't think they had a story. And I, it a, it's, it's astonishing to me. People have been writing me and saying to me, my mother was in Uzbekistan and I thought she was the only one there. And I'm like, a quarter million people were there. You thought if he was the only one there, because if the, the story wasn't told then, and they say about Iran. Um, I had, you know, a really funny thing happened to me. When I mean, somebody said to me, same thing. Somebody said to me, I was at the home of somebody, and he said he was very neurotic about food, and he said, well, I don't know, my mom is a Holocaust survivor, but she has this crazy story. She was in Tehran, never, you know, she was in Tehran. I know she got there, and uh, I heard that some Russian soldier took her there, and and I said, show me the documents, and. And, I, and he I looked at the dates, and she was re, she was basically sent it there on right exactly at the date when the rest of them were released from the settlements. And I said to him, you know, I'm sorry to tell you, but that Russian soldier is Joseph Stalin, and she was just part of this larger story. But he was like, oh my God, you know, I I, I, I had no idea. So, you know, in some ways, I think you know, my book is going to be the stories which people can understand their own experiences. And I think, and so for my dad, he. He didn't have a story, and and again, we have to understand that within this, I think, larger horror of the Holocaust, where the the concentration camp and the life under Nazi occupation, that became the Holocaust, right? That's like, and and the concentration camp is the kind of governing symbol of the Holocaust, and the refugee was not, and this was, so this was supposedly, these were the lucky ones, right? But, you know, when you research this, you're like, you know, this can only be considered lucky under these extreme circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: In that uh, town where you have a
0: living room, is there anyone left? No, no not, nobody is left and uh, none of their, their properties, not, I mean, nothing is left there. Uh, they did, however, astonishingly, um, so that that family, which basically most of which was murdered and none of whom stayed there, was was uh, investigated for uh, Zionism in 1968 in the kind of phantom investigations that were going on in the late 1960s. So I was able to get a lot of these documents, but no, nobody's left there and um, in some ways, that whole Jewish presence has been erased, even though now there's some attempts to, to do, to re, to re, at least to kind of re renovate the cemetery and so on. But no. Thank you for your talk. I'm just wondering, um, most of the pictures and stories um, so were of boys. Did the children of Tehran consist almost only
1: of boys? Um, no.
0: No, girls were amongst them. Yes, I mean, it was boys and girls, and like I said, a lot of different ages, anywhere from, uh, I mean, there are children who were born along the right so like age 2 to 17. Do you remember there were a lot of Jewish families, and they were
1: free in Iran? How come they didn't keep the children in Iran? Were they
0: forced to go to Palestine? No. No, they were not forced, but um, they were. I mean, that's a, that's a good question. But I, you know, they were basically Jewish Jewish um, aid organizations and and a Jewish organization in Palestine. And they knew what was happening. They were following these refugees already when they're in the settlements, and they were they were um, trying to find ways to help them. So they you know, that I th- that was already in a way it was already planned that they would be evacuated. When they got to Iran, their plan was to evacuate them. It's just that they couldn't evacuate them and they couldn't find a way to evacuate them because if you look at the at the map if you look at if you look at this map, um, I mean so Tehran and Tel Aviv are of course very close, right? I mean it's a one day when there'll be peace. Um, we can go. It's what is it? 48 hours, maybe. I think in a in a car ride. But of course, the children couldn't be evacuated to Iraq because Iraq wouldn't let Jewish children be evacuated to Palestine in 1943. So, um, in fact, Eleanor Roosevelt intervenes here, and she she intervenes with the Iran- with the Iraqi Prime Minister, and she says to him. She writes him and she says, "This is a humanitarian case. These are children. Let them through." And he says, you "No, know, we're very sorry. We feel for these children, and we'd we'll be happy to keep them in Iraq uh, if you sponsor them." Uh, so they actually end up having to go this really crazy route through the the Indian Ocean and it's full of German Latin sea mines, and then through the Suez Canal. So they through Aden and then Egypt and so on. There's one incredibly moving scene, their ship stops in Aden, and um, it's a British warship. The children are on it, and the children are told, you have to go down below and hide because uh, this is you know, hostile territory and so on. But they're children, so of course they can't stay foot, so they immediately go up on dock, and all these, basically, yeah, like all these children from ar- around them, are basically kind of jumping and swimming around them, and the children say there are these diaries, and the children say it's the first time we saw children that look worse than us. And they and they go down below and they get the food that is in the kitchen because of course now that they're on the British warship, they have tons of food there. They get the the, the food and they start throwing it to the kids in in the sea, and the kids start to jump in and get it. So you know that happens too. Um, but um, no, so they, no, they are, most of them are evacuated.
1: Yes. Uh, um, thanks for your interest. Uh, I have two. I had two questions. Now I have three questions. Uh, first one is that uh, in an article I was reading, about an in interview of Ukrainian uh, Schindler, who was supposedly the. Uh, I was wondering uh, how much do you think this history is valid and
0: if you were further uh, mention it?
1: Why don't you answer that? Uh, yes, the name is uh, yes, Zavadi. Zavadi. Yes. Uh, I've written about it in Persian space. Uh, there is now a documentary made about him that stands the story. And he is not the only Iranian diplomat. There are Iranian diplomats in Lebanon, the Iranian diplomats in Africa who Iranian, sometimes sold and sometimes gave away Iranian passports to Jews. There are several thousand Jews, European Jews, that were thus saved. Mm-hmm. The story of Saudi is absolutely correct. My second question is now. From your experience in your encounter among the Jewish community, uh, how would informed do you think they are about this uh, hospitality of the Middle Eastern or specifically Iranians and even the World War II and World War II?
0: I mean, you know, there are many Jewish communities, I guess, but um, I think it's actually not very well-known. Even for me, in the beginning, I had to... I mean, when I started started interviewing um, Persian Jews, of course, this is also, people are very old and so on, but people would tell me stories about hospitality, and I would be like, I want to find an independent source for this, because when you're researching a story like this, everybody tells you that they helped, right? the Bukhari Jews tell you that they hate, it. but um, I then I discovered, you know, when I was able to, co- to corroborate it, and I think, yes, I think they collected money and so on. Um, I, in many ways, this, it's not very well-known. The Iranian Jews know, but in Israel and um, I think elsewhere, it's, it's been a, a little bit, um, that, the, that history has been a little bit lost, but it's not gonna be lost anymore, hopefully, if people read my book. No, the last one, yes. Go ahead.
1: About the, uh, you said there was this uh, uh, Jewish aid organization, right? And uh, they organized to uh, bring all the Jews to Israel, right? So, my question is that. Uh, How was this decision made that all the Jews um, from the, other, the like Central Asia or
0: Middle East to be um, uh, collected in uh, Israel? Oh, no, no, that that's, that's not at all the case. I mean, the only ones that were evacuated to to Israel were these children. People who, basically my grandparents and all the, most Polish Jews who remained in Central Asia, most of them, they, they remain in Central Asia for the duration of the war. In 1945, there was a repatriation agreement between Poland and the Soviet Union. Many of them went back to Poland. So the typical route was this. They would go back to Poland. They would find that they have nothing to go back to. They would quickly, very quickly leave and they would end up in a displaced persons camp in Europe, in Germany or in Austria or in Italy. So, in fact, they could not go to Palestine because uh, the British were controlling Palestine. They were not allowing its Jews into Palestine at the time. And my parent, my father, could actually not reunite with his parents for for years after the war. Uh, they, My grandparents ended up in a displaced persons camp in Germany, and my grandfather actually died there unfortunately of, of uh, tuberculosis. So he's buried in Munich. And uh, my grandmother only came after the, the um, creation of Israel, so in 49, and many of them didn't go to Israel. It's just, I and mean, sometimes this was, they went to America depending on where they could go. And sometimes they were they'd spent years and years and years in displaced persons camps in some ways. What's horrible about it is that 45 is only the the kind of middle of their ordeal. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming.